Few players have been better in 2020 than Daniel Berger. You might know that if you pay attention to the PGA Tour, and you might not if you don't pay all that much attention, but seriously, only a couple of people have been better. Berger started 2020 ranked 154th in the world. He is now ranked 14th. He was great before the pandemic shut down the PGA Tour. He's been great after that. But 13 months ago, what was he doing? He was competing in the Corn Ferry Tour Championship, a surefire sign that things were not as rosy for him as he had wished. But if the Ryder Cup started today, he'd be on that team. His turnaround has been so good, we'd need him on that team. That's how good he is right now. On this week's episode, we dive into Daniel Berger's resurgence. We break down his upbringing. We go deep on what Florida means to him and what things he's learned at this point of his career. That and much more right here on The Drop Zone. Let's put it simply, Dylan, when we sat down with Daniel Berger about a month ago now, what Mm -hmm. did you want to learn from him? Well, for Daniel, I wanted to know what it was like growing up in what is now like golf's international capital, right? We hear all the time about Jupiter. We've written about it. We've talked about it. We've been there. We go on photo shoots there. Everybody lives there. The Mecca. Tiger lives there. Everyone. It's the it's the golf Mecca when it comes to PGA Tour players. Daniel Berger's from there. <laughs> and there's a couple other guys that are, you know, that grew up around there. Brooks Kepka grew up in West Palm Beach. But Berger grew up like working his way, so the legend goes, into these local money games. Yeah. So I just wanted to know like what that was like. What you know, what is what's the jupe life like when you're a local? Yeah. I feel like he's probably got some you know, we, we anticipated him having some pretty cool memories about mm-hmm. it, and he definitely does. And a number of those stories have been have been told ad nauseum, but you know, he isn't planning on leaving ever. He's always yeah. lived in Florida, never been pulled away. Like obviously these AJGA superstars, they end up kind of traveling across the country and they play events mm-hmm. everywhere. But like his home base has always been Florida and he went to school at FSU. And so like, I don't know, you you grew up in Massachusetts, have moved to Seattle. I grew up in Wisconsin, moved to New York. So like we are very comfortable kind of leaving our home states. I was just kind of curious if like, if he ever had any reason or want to leave. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember Brooks Kepka. you remember him saying that he had never had a hot drink? <laughs> that one blew yeah. my mind. He yeah. never had, he never had like hot chocolate or coffee or so, I mean, it's just a good reminder. Like these guys are from Florida. Yeah. They are, you know, they're from where we vacation. And uh, I wanted to know what that was like. Without any further ado, here is us two and Daniel Berger. Sean, we've got a very special guest today from Florida, the pride of Jupiter, slash Miami, slash generally South Florida, Daniel Berger. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So we wanted to ask you a ton of stuff. Uh, we want to ask you about your revitalized golf game, which is insanely good right now. But we kind of wanted to start back at the beginning because I think it's so interesting the way you've come up through the sport. Um, so give us a little bit of background. You grew up in South Florida, right? Born and raised South Florida. Never lived uh, north of Jupiter. Um, 
That's awesome. But uh, <laughs> well, I guess the two years I went to school at Florida State, okay. that counts. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think it counts. Yeah. You grew up south of there first, or you were born what, Actually, in Miami area? Born in Plantation, uh, lived there uh, for a couple years, then moved down to Key Biscayne, down in Miami. Lived in, lived in Key Biscayne for the first 12, 13 years of my life, and then uh, moved up to Jupiter, and uh, rest has, is history. He has not experienced winter like we have experienced winter. That's right. Sean's from Wisconsin. I'm from Massachusetts. So, But we would go down to Florida for a little bit of vacation. But yeah, so I, I like I, the idea that going up north means going up to Jupiter. I think I've seen snow like twice in my life. So, <laughs> Damn, we got to get you out more. Yeah, yeah. we got to get the kids skiing. No, it's, it's one of those things that's cool until you deal with it for two weeks. Exactly. It's not cool anymore. It's <laughs> nice to be able to go visit it. All right, so when did you start becoming a serious golfer? Did you play a bunch of other sports growing up? I played everything growing up. Tennis, soccer, baseball. The only thing I didn't play was football. My, my parents wouldn't let me play football. They wouldn't let you. No. Um, I think it's progressive. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I played, uh, my dad was a tennis coach. I, I grew up playing competitive tennis, probably to the age of 12. Are you good? And I mean, I like to think I was good, but I don't, I don't good think- Good enough to play pro I don't think my dad would say I was good, but uh, no, you know, I, I did a summer camp one year when I was 12 years old and I just fell in love with it. I was like, this is what I want to do. I got so excited. I was like, I can't wait to go back the next day. And and that was kind of the first step I ever had in golf. And and I've always been that type of person that I always knew I wanted to be a professional athlete. I mean, I didn't know what sport it was going to be, but I just knew I wanted to play sports. And uh, I just had that passion for it. And I've, you know, kind of, I've since I was 12 years old, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to go to the golf course, whether it's 6.30 in the morning before, you know, class and my dad's going to drop me off. He'll pick me up. I'll go to school and then I go back to the course until dark. And, and that's how it was for as long as I can remember. I feel like I'm trying to think of a better location in the country, in the world for someone who's like 10 years old and really wants to play golf than the place where all the golfers go. Yeah. Like it had to be the right spot. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the Palm Beach area, the Jupiter. I mean, it's, it's become the, the Mecca of golf. I mean, you look at Every single week, there's a there's another guy moving into town. You That's know, Phil I think is is moving down yeah. to, uh, to yeah. Jupiter, and so there's there's something there for sure, and it's competitive. You know, every day we go out there, there's uh, there's a million different guys that want to play games, and and that's how you get how do better. You pick and choose between who to play with. There's certain guys that like to practice, and there's certain guys that like to play, and and I'm more of a guy that likes to play. I mean, obviously there's the, there's an element of practice, but. Sure. Um, I just think you get better when you go on the course and you work on things. So, so that's where I've always feel like I've always, I've always gotten better. Is the more I play, the better I get. And I think a lot of guys these days, they tend to overpractice a little Interesting. bit. You, you grew up kind of in this area, obviously getting better at golf, but when did you work your way into like the pro scene, you know, playing with some of the local guys or getting yeah. into money games or four balls or anything like that. I mean, it's an interesting story, actually. Uh, when we moved up to Jupiter, my dad uh, got in contact with Yvonne Lendo, who was one of his tennis peers back in the day. And Yvonne set us up with uh, the pro at, uh, at a course called the Die Preserve in Jupiter. And the pro, Matt Doyle, took me under his wing. He, he gave me a job at the course. He um, What was your job? I picked the range every day. Hell yeah. From, we like that. From Both I, been there. Yeah, yeah. I would set up the range on the weekends and close it down so sunrise you, okay. to sunset. You gotta be one of those people when you see the lines on the range, right? And you see the either the stations in a row, if you see one that's like out of line, Absolutely. it probably has to bother you. I'm gonna go fix it. But no, I would say that 
of all the golfers on the PGA Tour, and none have ever picked as many ranges as I have in my life. Oh, man, I wonder who's number two on that list. Yeah, yeah it would be interesting. No one to think of. That's pretty cool. So then, did you start to get to know? Were there pros at that yeah. point that were? So I got really lucky because at at the Die Preserve they had ten professionals that were playing there. You know, Steve Marino, Jesper Parnovic. Um, I could, the list goes on and on. And yeah. and. I think I was really lucky because Steve took me under his wing and he, uh, you know, for a 14, 15 year old kid um, to go out there and, and to play with, you know, a PGA Tour player, that, I mean, that's pretty special. Not, not a lot of PGA Tour players, you know, would, would take someone like that under his wing. And, um, you know, we gambled all the time. We gambled for money that I didn't have in my pocket. Um, and, uh, and I just feel like I got so much better quicker because I had experienced a level of golf that most 15-year-old, 16-year-old kids don't experience till they're 20, mid-20s, you know what I mean? So I just think that uh, I understood what it took to get to that level and, and I was around it so often that when I finally got out there, it didn't feel yeah. any different than what I had been through my entire so life. So you win all the, like, if, you, if you're betting with money that you don't have in your pocket, that must uh, have, you did a lot weird. of winning at the time. There was a couple funny good, good stories. Uh, we were putting on the putting green, me and Steve, and we were putting for $500. I don't know why for $500. I had $12 in my pocket, and I beat Steve on the putting green, and he was so pissed. He was like, it was right before sunset. I mean, you couldn't see anything. And he's like, we're gonna go play the last three holes for, for double or nothing right now from the back tees. And, I'm, and I've never played the back tees in my life. And so we go play the holes. He ends up beating me. I get really pissed. I'm like double it up again, we play for another 500, he beats me again, and I had nothing. So he took my iPod, and he had, he had my iPod for three years. I shit you not. Steve Marino kept my and, iPod and for what, three years. And what, how old, 12? I mean, I was 15 at the time, yeah. yeah. At the, the exact age at which an iPod is like the best thing that you own. Exactly. Yeah. The most important possession you have. So he took that for three years, and he actually, Finally gave it back. I paid him back when I got on the web.com tour, and he uh, he gave me back the iPod, That's and I was like, you can't tell this story to people. Yeah, so. I was gonna say, did that feel good? Was that like a validation when you could pay him back and just you know symbolically get your iPod? I did, back? yeah, and I told him I was like, don't be spreading this story to other people. That's so, awesome. I'm curious, at what age are you too good to be picking the range anymore? You're never too good to be picking the range. <laughs> okay. I think there's a there's a humility that comes with going back to the golf course and kind of getting back to your roots and uh, just feeling like a, like a kid again. So in the same way that, you know, a pyramid of balls out of line would bother you, you probably don't hit stingers at the guys picking the range. I do not hit stingers at guys picking the range. Camillo did that to me one time, and the cart that I was driving was like 20 years old, and it was yeah. all rusty, like on the side, and he slapped into the rust, hit me in the face, and I was like, after that, I was like, I'm not hitting, I'm not hitting balls into pickers anymore. It's like a PSA. We should yeah. <laughs> stop hitting stingers at ball pickers. Stop yeah. hitting the range cart pickers, yeah. All right, let's pause for one quick second. Uh, Dylan, we had Berger talk about his upbringing. Uh, I want to know what you were surprised about, but first I'll tell you what I was surprised at. I was surprised at just how much he was like a true blue golf course mm -hmm worker yes he's proud to have been like picking the range riding the picker having people hit stingers at him like there are pros who worked at a mm -hmm. golf course in quotations growing up and it means that they like 
caddied like twice yeah. a month and you know so that they justified their existence <laughs> at the club and they got free lessons from the pro like burger actually worked at a golf course. it's incredibly relatable right i mean both of us have worked at golf courses you know as we talked about in the interview and i think a lot of people that end up playing golf later in life have that experience it's like a classic first job that yeah. people have you know especially for kids like us growing up in small towns that's just something that you know high school kids do they work the they work the range and i don't know i just loved that moment of burger talking about uh you know how you shouldn't aim for the range guy you should not go for the guy in the cart which i you know it's still tempting always to do what i loved is what he said he said you're never too good to be picking the range mm-hmm. it's just like kind of a a mentality he's comfortable with I think at the bottom line is if you can remind yourself where you came from, yeah. you're never too good for that. And he, he definitely enjoyed it. And I, I kind of love that mindset, especially for someone like him who he's reached some highs and he's definitely now reached some lows within the game. And so sometimes you got to remind yourself like it could be worse, man. <laughs> yeah. Then we've, we've been lower. We're never too good for where we came from. No doubt. And you'd have to imagine that during some of those low moments in the in-between, not that he would have doubted his game period, but he, he definitely had some questions about what his future in the world of golf is. So the guy's seen it all. And I liked that. Yeah. Well, we delved into that and we delved into what it's like having so many pros in one area. Uh, everyone loves hearing those stories about money games, but also we got into talking about how Daniel Berger had a resurgence this year. He was like the best golfer this summer uh, before the majors got going. So anyways, back to Daniel Berger. Take us inside the Jupiter games like right now, you know, how do those get set up? Do a lot of pros really like to play these games week in and week out? Yeah. I mean, like, a simple example would be like on a Saturday you go to the Bears Club there's 15 pros out there and it's kind of like hey what are you doing hey what are you doing Um, we usually play you know we all want to play so we'll get like a game of five or six guys and we'll play a game of wolf or find some individual matches but everyone's super friendly and and everyone's so competitive you know it's it's like it's a way to to continue your preparation on an off week for a tournament it's it's the same juices flowing and everyone wants to win so I think it's a huge advantage to have. Is the game Wolf? Is it? Is that typically the that game? That is the game, yeah. I mean, I just think it's it's not my favorite game because you can play really well and lose a lot of money or yeah. you can play really poorly and win a lot of money. It's kind of a luck of who you're getting sure. picked and but it's uh, it's entertaining so that's why we play it. Yeah, I think I lived in Florida for a couple of years, played some really poor professional golf but I think people underrate just how much time golfers have on their hands when they're at home like in between tournaments or anything like that but it's cool the way guys at different levels you know mini tour guys get to play for fun well not for fun but play (laughs) you know not in tournaments with guys like yourself and you know I'm sure push you guys to say wait a minute if I don't stay on top of my game there's a lot of guys that want my spot yeah I mean at, at the end of the day there's 125 PGA Tour jobs and there's a million people that want that, you yeah. know what I mean? So you have to you have to constantly be doing everything you can to get better. And um, you look at the the generation of players that are coming out, they're, they're so much better than they were 15, 20 years this ago. This is a trip for me because I've been working in golf just long enough that you were the generation coming out and now yeah. you're talking about it. I know, I know, it's, it's so crazy. Me, I mean, you see the, the names that are coming out, you know, Colin Morikawa, he's, I don't know, he's early 20s, he, he's yeah. won a major championship. Um, you know, the young guys that are now coming off the Corn Ferry Tour, they're the same way. I mean, you know, you're 
you're so used to playing at such a high level from the amateur to the college to the you know the mini tours to the corn ferry tour that you're just set up to to be a better professional golfer when you finally get to the pga tour yeah. so you have been to the top you know early on in your career you were pga tour rookie of the year and then you know you were still playing obviously insanely high level golf but now you're in this resurgence what happened in the in-between and what happened to get you back where you are now? Yeah, you know, there was a period of time where I had some injuries. Um, I hurt my finger slash wrist and, and that... Wait, 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 which finger? It was my right hand ring finger slash wrist. And it was just one of those things that I probably should have taken more time off, but I was just felt like everyone was passing me. And instead of, you know, spending that time resting, doing yeah. the things that I needed to do, I, I tried to play through it. and. It just got worse and worse, and eventually I ended up taking the time off. I think it was probably a year and a half ago. I missed uh, four months, I think, and and then, you know, it just eventually got better, and I could do the things I needed to do to prepare to play golf. You know, you you're used to hitting a thousand golf balls a week, and that goes down to 200 because yeah. you just don't feel like you can do it in a healthy way, and and your game suffers, and and that's I feel like that was the biggest thing, and um, you know, I started working with a new coach a year ago, Cameron McCormick in Dallas. Mm -hmm. um, and that that really I feel like changed my game. You know, I was uh, I was consistently below average around the greens, chipping, putting, and started working with him. And he's you know really changed my uh, my outlook on short game and putting. And you know, last year or this year, I had one of the best uh, best years of my life chipping. I, I was first in scrambling, which um, I would have never thought that I would have been first in scrambling. I didn't and, you were first in scrambling. And I was top twenty in putting. So. You know, you add that up, and and that's you're gonna have a successful year if you, if you can hit it halfway decent. Do you have any like universal chipping tips, maybe for my co-host Sean here, that would just like really take him to the next level? Uh, I haven't you seen your see game, game, but right? uh, I think uh, it wouldn't universal. it wouldn't be too hard to fix. No, I think the biggest thing I learned is 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 to work on a variety of shots, to test yourself, to to constantly be challenging yourself, playing little games, um, hitting the shots that you wouldn't necessarily hit on a normal practice you know, day where you give yourself the downhill bunker lie or the side hill chip shot or hitting it out of the rough and just giving yourself a different variety of shots that when you get on the course, it's familiar. You're not like, oh, I... Daniel Kang was saying this morning, she's like, I spend three times as much time in my short game than I do my irons. Hmm. Just every single shot, every single shot. Interesting. It, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I thought it was a little ironic that, so you went through you know, the injury, a little bit of a valley, and you've come back up. And part of that has been because of Cam McCormick. And now Jordan Spieth has kind of gone into a little bit of a valley and people want him to lose Cam McCormick. It's just like, I guess what people probably, everyone's situation's different, right? Absolutely. And like Cam McCormick can work for you and he can work for Jordan Spieth. But some people are just like, Jordan needs a break. He needs to change things up. Yeah. And so you changed coaches. Is that a total reset button? Like, do you just wipe the slate clean? You know, you, it's it's so challenging because, you know, for me, I had worked with one coach my entire career for 10 plus years, and you're used to hearing one thing and you're used to hearing one perspective, and then you kind of get a different perspective, and, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean- It can be bad, huh? Some of the hardest things for a professional golfer to deal with is once you open these doors of information, can you close them, you know what I mean? Oh boy. It's, uh, it's a Too challenge. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, that's you, you got to give guys like Bryson credit who have all these doors open and have yeah. all this information coming at him and he's able to process it and close the door and hit the shot. And, and for some people that doesn't work. And 
I think uh, in, in Jordan's, uh, uh, when you look at Jordan's game, he, he's one of the best to play the game. He's so young. I mean, he's, my, he's 26 years old. Golf is so incredibly hard. You're going to have those ups and downs. And, and he's, I think uh, when you stick it through, eventually you come out on top. And for someone as talented as him, he'll figure it out. I mean, I know he's going through a difficult time, but sometimes it just takes, you know, one round at, at an event to really build your confidence and that can change your whole perspective of how you're playing. Did you have that doubt? Did you kind of feel that? I mean, when you're out for four months, I know like Brooks Kepka has talked about it. it it's hard because it can be that feeling like the golf world is kind of passing you by. Forgetting about you. Did you always believe that much in yourself? That you're like, look, I'll be fine. I just need to get back out there. Or was it tricky? I mean, it's definitely tricky. I think that's one of the hardest things to do is to be able to believe in yourself when you're at your kind of your lowest point. Um, but you kind of have to go back to like your inner child almost like what was fun for you back then and, and kind of build on those things. And eventually you start to see the success and the, and the confidence is really what makes the biggest difference. I mean, if you get up to a tee shot and there's water on the left and you're concerned about hitting it in the water, I mean, you're going to have a real trouble playing golf that day. But yeah. if you can get up there and, and you have no fear, I mean, I'd rather be fearless and have a terrible golf swing because I know I'm going to perform better than have, you know, a great golf swing and, I, and I'm concerned about where I'm going to hit it. Yeah. So um, I think the confidence aspect is, is massive. I think it's one of the most underrated things that, you know, golfers can have. All right, let's pause one final time uh, to put DB into perspective, DB straight vibing. I kind of want to talk about his career with you because, uh, well, earlier on in the conversation, I kind of teased out the fact that I was there, <laughs> I was in the same job I am in now when Daniel Berger came onto the scene. Mm -hmm. When the high school class of 2011 came onto the scene, I was there at his Rookie of the Year press conference uh, at the Safeway Open, uh, which was the Fries.com Open at that time. Mm -hmm. But like... It was like, okay, we've got these new young shining stars. Spieth wins two majors. Justin Thomas is breaking onto the scene. Xander Shoffley is going to become a rookie mm -hmm. of the year. Daniel Berger's rookie of the year. Emiliano Grillo, Patrick Rogers, like the list goes on and on. These people were known as the 11s. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you were paying attention to it at that time, but like that was the class. Um, and it's just so interesting for him to be like talking about the up and coming generation right. as if he's not a part of it anymore. He's not, man. He's not. <laughs> I mean, look, he still is. And it's been cool seeing his resurgence because it's a reminder like, yeah, this guy was really good before. And now he is really, really good again. Um, but he's still flown under the radar a lot. Like he's just a guy that's been on the leaderboard every single week. It seems like on the PGA Tour this year, he's been racking up top tens. He's been winning. Um, but you don't necessarily get that much uh time with Berger just on you know TV on SportsCenter in sit downs or, or like in between moments so I think a lot of people don't necessarily know Daniel Berger the personality I was struck by how down to earth he was he was you know we talked about that that range picker mentality but this is definitely just a guy that likes to be a normal guy he takes pride in that as a part of his entire PGA Tour persona and if he makes you feel a little old in the process, then so be it. Yeah, he definitely made me feel old, but it was kind of cool because through the ups and the downs, like Spieth right now struggling, mm -hmm. JT might be the best player in the world, Xander's uh, in the top 10, Grillo still working through his putting. Like these guys, their careers have progressed. 
uh, and they they're they're just smarter. They're they're they've matured in the same way you and I have matured. They've done it in the spotlight, whereas you and I haven't quite <laughs> done it in the spotlight. They've been, you know, they've they've had like life moments, and it, I guess it's kind of something that's worth remembering. As much as the yep. guy was a top ten machine this summer, like these guys, they've learned a lot in the last five years. So yeah, de- that definitely comes across in an interview too. I guess we've matured in the spotlight on the drop zone little by little. But <laughs> to that point, it's also a reminder that this is not that easy. You know, even for the guys that right now look can't miss, look like they're just going to be good forever. They're going to win all the time. Hovland, Morikawa, Scheffler, Wolf, like those guys are going to hit some rough stretches. It's not always going to be yeah, as easy. Yeah, it happens. It? it always happens. It happened to Tiger. You know, like he forced it on himself a little bit mm-hmm. and he got himself out of it. But like he changed his swing and at some point his low is a lot higher than most people's low, but he did you know, he went a year without winning on tour. So it, it does happen to everyone. Yes, sir. So just another couple Florida uh, guys being compared to each other. I like it. <laughs> uh, all right. And now for some final thoughts from Mr. Berger on how he forces himself to play better, to take it super low. I think we can all learn something from this. I love what he says coming up here. I think that's true, and I think a lot of people say that. It's still hard for people like myself to really grasp it, because it's like, of course, you got to be confident. But it's, it's. You always said it was like, you have to be unafraid to take it deep. You have to be so confident that in your ability that maybe I'll go freaking low today. Maybe I won't go freaking low today. But yeah. like, a little confident. bit irrational confidence. Even. Yes. No, I mean, the way I used to put it was, I had to piss myself off when I was five or six under. You know, like. F this, I don't want to be six under, I want yeah. to be eight under. You wow. know, if you just kind of, if you're just settling for that number and you're okay with it, you're never going to kind of get to that, that next level of shooting those really low scores. And, and, and that's something that I kind of learned at a young age. And I think the more that I challenge myself, sometimes I would go play the ladies tees. Nice. And I would try to shoot as many under par yeah. as possible because yeah. golf is about scoring and, and you know, you play a golf course like we have last week at the U.S. Open, which is incredibly hard, and then you play uh, East Lake, which is incredibly hard, and the week before that was Olympia Fields, which was incredibly hard. Your golf game doesn't feel that bad, but yeah. you're shooting even par, one over par, and you're like, man, I'm just not scoring. Yeah. So you gotta find ways to be able to get your mind into that stage where I can go out there and make six, seven, eight birdies in a round, and, and sometimes that's going and playing you know, the ladies tees are going and, you know, figuring out a way to make birdies. What's the lowest round you've ever shot? In a PGA ever? Tour event? No, or? At, at home, practicing, something where you've pretty much have hold most of your putts. And- I shot 61 at the Bears Club before I went to Colonial, and, and I figured that was... Some good vibes. Yeah, that was some pretty good vibes going into yeah. to Colonial. I was like, I think I'd played six or seven rounds leading up to heading out for Colonial, and I was like, 30 or 40 under par and I was like man if I just keep doing wow. this I'll be in, See, in pretty good position that's, that that is evidence for exactly what you said earlier about how you are much more of a player than a practicer like you you could bang balls before colonial and you had to a little bit but like to have a number like oh god I'm 30 under par my last four rounds yeah. out here like that's confidence building before an actual PGA Tour tournament yeah, and I, and I read something not too long ago that Rory said, and he was like, when I'm not playing great, I try to play my way out of it, you know, mm-hmm. play as much golf as I can yeah. to play my way out of whatever funk I'm in. And, and I took that to heart because I think, uh, you know, 
you can't sit out there and work on your technique for six hours a day because at the end of the day, all you're trying to do is get the ball in the hole in as little shots as possible. And if you're thinking about where your club needs to be or whatever, you're not going to do that. So um, that was something that I think really helped me. How do we get this guy to like spend a little time north of Florida? Oh yeah. Just like a well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Skiing, you're playing. You're playing. Colorado. You're playing so well. You're you're in the mix for a Ryder Cup team that happens to be at in Wisconsin early October. Yeah. You're gonna be cold. It will be cold, and uh, I, f I feel like uh, you know having Captain Stricker been my captain when I played the Presidents Cup was yeah, probably a right. good thing. You know, he's been around me. He's uh, he knows what I'm about. He's been in the team rooms with me, so. Uh, I think that's definitely going to work to my advantage, but in the end, you just got to continue to play great golf. And yeah. you look at you know the Americans, and there, there's so many great players. It's it's like you go down the list right now, and it's it's really hard to pick. You could you know. feel the Jupiter Ryder Cup team, and it would oh my be gosh, pretty it would be I mean, pretty that good. Is most of the Ryder Cup. Team. Yes, it is. Do you guys hang out? Uh, not necessarily the Ryder Cuppers, but the Jupe crew, like socially, outside of just the golf course. Are you guys friends? Absolutely. I think uh, as time has gone on, and you know players have you know the guys that I grew up with they're starting to get married they're starting yeah. to have kids they're just their families are starting to grow a little bit more and I think that takes away a little bit from you know the relationships that we have I mean not to knock it or anything but uh and also you know you know we're on completely different schedules a lot of the time so you know one guy's played three weeks in a row the other guy hasn't played in three weeks yeah. you know so some someone doesn't want to play golf someone does want to play golf it's challenging but uh all the friends that I've had in the game of golf, from the PGA Tour to the Corn Ferry Tour to amateur golf, they're still my friends, and we still do things outside of golf, which is uh, which is a great, different perspective to have sure. to see these guys yeah. when you're not competing with them every day. Do you see much of Tiger down there? Does he pretty much stay in Tigerland, or does he come play <laughs> some of these games? No, I think he pretty much stays in, in Tigerland. I think he's got his group of kind of you know Justin and a few other guys that he yeah. likes to play with, but. Uh, you know, I think they play mostly at Medalist, and I'm not a member there. I mean, we get games out there all the time, but I don't like to, you know, overdo my welcome. Okay. I played a couple times, and yeah, that's my last question. You remember at the Bears Club? Is that the only place you remember? I'm a member at the Dive Preserve and, and at Turtle Creek too, which is a little 18-hole course right by my yeah. house. How does Jupe Boy, the Jupe Boy, now born or now a PGA Tour player, can choose pretty much wherever he wants to be a member? How does he make those decisions? How did you decide where do you want to go? Well, Mr. Nicholas had a big influence on the Bears Club, obviously, uh, you know, being being who he is. And, uh, you know, uh, my dad played a lot of tennis with him on the weekends. He's a he's a big tennis fan. Awesome. So we had a little bit of a relationship there. And then I also um, I lost to to Mr. Nicholas's son, Gary, in the Palm Beach County Amateur when I was 14 years old or 15 years old. And that was kind of the first uh, real experience I ever had with him. He was watching and uh, so I just think our relationship has kind of grown from there, and um, he's someone that is, is super open. You know, I, I can call him up and say, "Hey, you want to grab lunch? I wanted to chat with you You've about something." You've seen him something. play tennis. Yeah, I mean, How's not as tennis not. I don't. It's not as good these days as it was before. He's you know he's definitely getting up there in age, but he's got a great grass court in the back of his house, and Sweet. Um, when Wimbledon comes around, my dad will bring some of his players to train out there before. So um, he, he's a great guy and. And you just go to you go to places that you're comfortable. I mean, they treat you so so amazingly out there. They've got a par three course, five different chipping greens. I mean, it's kind of just you can get as good as you want to get out there, and that's and that's what it comes down to. Last question: What is it about Jupiter? How is I mean, you grew up there, so you've always been there. 
but what was the magnet that started drawing everyone there to begin with and that has made it this international capital of the world for golfers? Well, for me, it's always been the water, the beach access, um, the fishing, doing that type of stuff for me is kind of my outlet away from golf. And, um, you know, I grew up on the water. I've always, I got my boater's license when I was 10 years old. So, yeah. I mean, in the summertime, that's what I would do. I'd wake up at six in the morning, take the flats boat out, go fishing. Um, so I've just always been around the water and, and and there's really nowhere better in the world, in my opinion, than, than Jupiter in terms of, of that. You know, you go six miles offshore and you're, you're you know, you're fishing for, for tuna and wahoo and dolphin. And so, I mean, it really doesn't get any better than that. But I think nowadays it's like you look at the, the quality of the golf courses. I mean, there's 50 golf courses that are unbelievable within a 10 mile radius. And you have all these different opportunities to play these courses and get these games that you start to see, you know, some of the, even the Europeans are starting to come over now. And yeah. um, it's really, it has, it has become a Mecca. So, I mean, it was a nice little quiet piece of paradise. Until, You're never leaving. I'm never leaving. I'm, I'm definitely never leaving, um, but it's definitely not as quiet as it was awesome. once. That means we got to work on our game so we can come down and yeah. hop, in a, uh, hop in one of these games. Anytime you want. Appreciate that. All right, Daniel Berger, thanks so much for joining us on the Drop Zone. You got it. Alrighty, that is good enough for us and Daniel Berger. Great stuff from him. I love that you are never too good for the range picker. Also, I automatically just, I have a lot of respect for people if they've held that position at some point in life, if they've been a range picker or a person who sets up the driving range in the morning and makes sure all the pyramids of golf balls are in a perfect line. Shout out to the range pickers. Stop hitting stingers at them. We will see you next week with a couple special Masters podcasts with Jack Nicholas. You're going to want to tune in for that. See you then.